2: Ah, don't you love this song, "Morning" by Grieg. Doesn't this little ditty just soothe your soul? I like to imagine when I hear this song that I'm frolicking through a field, perhaps even riding a horse. I've never ridden a horse before but I can see us galloping through a field and it's not hurting my vagina one bit. Horses, aren't they lovely, majestic, beautiful creatures? But wait. Imagine one horse. Then imagine another horse. And then another, and then another. And then there are so many horses. They're all crammed together on a busy street. Let's say a street in New York City. They're everywhere. You can't escape. Oh, God, I don't think I like horses anymore. So at the end of the 19th century, horses were one of the biggest problems in metropolitan areas all over the world. (laughs) They were all over the place. They were used for all sorts of things like transportation. Horses powered the trolley system. They were the locomotive engine for carriages and buggies. And these buggies could be dangerous. 200 New Yorkers got run over by carriages every year. Yeah, those horses were drunk. But most of the horses were used for hauling goods and building buildings. And no, they wouldn't build with their little hooves. They were used to power the machinery that would build the buildings. You know, literal horsepower. And the reason there are so many horses is because there were so many people. In New York City in 1800, there were like 30,000 people. But then by 1890, there was like 2.6 million. And it wasn't built to hold that many. Luckily, very few people live there today. And then there's like 200,000 horses. That's like one horse per 10 people. And do you guys know what horses do? Unlike me, they poo and they pee. That's right. I don't have a body. I'm just a disembodied voice. And the thing is, the pee and the poo, mostly the poo, builds up. It's estimated that one individual horse would expel somewhere between 15 and 30 pounds of manure a day. So in total, that's like three to four million pounds a day from all the horses just in the streets of New York. And let's also not forget how each horse would also expel quarts and quarts of piss. And if you can believe it, all this horsey dung was a problem. No one wanted to be clomping upon miles of horse excrement. And so that's what we're talking about in today's episode. How did they solve this horse shit problem? Well, let's stop horsing around and get into it. (laughs) Cue the theme song. This is American Filth. I'm Gabby Watts. Every week I tell you a filthy story from American history. This week's episode, A Sea of Manure. So yeah, New York, lots of cities at the end of the 19th century were covered in horse dookie. One person in the late 19th century called New York a sea of manure. The shit was, quote, lining city streets like banks of snow. And the thing is, even when it snowed or when it rained, that didn't help the problem at all. The poo would just get caked into the sidewalk, into the streets, into the buildings. And the horse shit, that's not the only problem. There's also a lot of trash and garbage. People were producing a lot of ash in their houses because of fires and shit. But there wasn't a functional public garbage collection service. Like, if you wanted your street to be cleaned up, you personally had to pay someone to do it. Or just do it yourself. And the thing is, every time that New York City did hire people to clean... Uh, They never seemed to do their jobs. The garbage collectors and street cleaners had a really bad reputation, you know, as lazy and as slackers. And then they would only work if they were bribed. The thing that's interesting, though, is that New York City used to actually have great trash collection. This was earlier in the 19th century. Because then they didn't have that many horses, but they did have a lot of pigs. That's right. It used to be that pigs were just running amok throughout the town. And you know what pigs like to do? They like to eat trash. And then for dessert, they like to eat their own shit. Perfect. Sustainable. So the reason there are these pigs in the city was that, like, in the 1820s, a lot of people started moving to New York, in part because of the Erie Canal opening up. But some of the people who already lived in New York City before this great influx of people, they were homesteaders, and these were their pigs. And so the city was being built up, and the pigs were just there, just free roaming, doing whatever they wanted to do, which was mostly eat trash. The city was their brunch buffet. In fact, there were actually so many pigs, like there's 20,000 pigs just running around, that they became part of New York's early identity. Like, travelers would come from all over, and they always had something to say about the pigs. Like Charles Dickens. He came to New York City in 1842. He wasn't really a big fan of Americans, uh, and so he was delighted when he saw that America's big city was littered with swine. He wrote, Two portly sows are trotting up behind a carriage, and a select party of a half a dozen gentleman hogs have just now turned the corner. Wow. Piggy courtship. But the politicians and the rich people in the city didn't like that pigs were associated with New York. They didn't want visitors to keep thinking that their city was no better than a barnyard. So they launched a smear campaign against the pigs through the 1850s and 60s so that they could get rid of them. They are like, oh, pigs, they attack children. They poo on you. They cause carriage accidents because they don't obey the traffic rules. They're in the way. They also accused pigs of carrying diseases, which they didn't really. Like if any rich person in New York would get a headache, they'd be like, oh, it's because of the pigs. The pigs did this to me. And then they said the biggest sin of all that the swine had been committing... Sometimes ladies, that's right, ladies, would see swine copulating in public view. (gasps) That's right, that's something ladies should not be seeing. And so they got rid of the pigs. And by getting rid of the pigs, they actually gave themselves a much bigger problem. Because the horse shit, unlike the pigs, the horse shit, actually does lead to disease, because what comes with shit? Mosquitoes, bugs, rats, other vermin that transmit disease. So New York City, they had all the hits. They had cholera, they had typhoid, they had typhus, they had yellow fever, malaria. Adults were sick, children were dying, death indirectly by dung. So yeah, a lot was at stake. So we're at this point in time where people are seriously considering how to improve sanitation. And city officials, you know, they tried to do some things about it. One plan that worked briefly was that the city had farmers come in and take as much of the manure as they could because they were like, hey, you could use it as fertilizer. And wow, look at this symbiotic relationship. You provide the labor to remove the dung and voila, free fertilizer. But the thing is, there was just too much poo. And the farmers didn't need that much fertilizer. They realized that they were at the end of a bad deal. So they're like, hey, we'll remove the manure as long as you pay us. Damn, (laughs) the city couldn't get free labor, boo. And the thing that might be even more disturbing than the fact that there was trash, that there was horse manure, Another big issue that they had was that sometimes people would just leave their horses in the street after they died. That's right. They would just leave their dead horses in the street to rot. Don't we love to hear that? And now, horse girlies, you might want to tune out for the next couple of minutes because I'm going to talk about the horses and you're not going to like what I'm going to say because the horses, they were not treated well. Most of them were being used for horsepower, so they were worked to the brink. (laughs) They also lived in terrible conditions. The horses were stabled in these big garages within New York's horse districts. They were just crowded in there, and they were fed from these large granaries, which attracted rats and other rodents. And the craziest thing is that the grain sometimes would rot, and because of, like, fermentation and whatnot, sometimes the garages would then explode. They would like burn down, and then all the buildings in the surrounding area would also burn down. What? That's crazy. So yeah, the horses weren't having a good time. The average lifespan of a horse is 25 to 30 years. But in the 1890s, the average lifespan of the workhorses was two and a half years. They were literally worked to death. I would, at this point, make a beating a dead horse joke, but that feels very inappropriate and a viable reason for cancellation. So let's move on. One thing city officials did with these dead horses starting in the 1850s was send them to this little island, Barren Island, off near Jamaica Bay, because this island had several processing mills. That's right, they would turn the dead horses into glue. And that's how it got the name Dead Horse Bay. And you might be thinking, an island filled with glue factories, that sounds terrible. And what's worse, uh, people actually lived on the island. Yeah, all the people who operated the glue factories and whatnot, they lived there. Most of the residents were immigrants, and they lived in very toxic conditions. And then even off the island, they were treated appallingly. Like, in 1879, there was this Brooklyn Railroad Company that got the court to rule that they could legally turn away the people who lived on the island because their clothes smelled so bad. Yikes. But even Dead Horse Bay couldn't save New York City. There were still a lot of dead horses and even more horse shit. And yet, yeah, the city's politicians had done some things here and there trying to relieve the problem of filth. But the problem was the administration in the early 1890s uh, was a little bit corrupt. You know, there was fraud, there was disorganization, just greedy men doing greedy men stuff. And part of the reason they didn't have an effective sanitation department uh, was because some of them were pocketing the money that was supposed to be for cleaning up the city. Whoopsies! (laughs) Whoopsies! <laughs> but it was getting bad. There's so many people, so much horse shit. Everyone was like, something's got to change. People are sick and it smells. So there was an election and a new mayor. And this mayor was very much into reform. And he knew who he needed to get to make everything change in the sanitation department. He called on George E. Waring Jr. God, what a cliffhanger. Be right back after these soothing advertisements.
1: Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
3: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer.
2: So while the politicians in New York were not investing in their sanitation department, aka taking away the money for the sanitation department, around the country and around the world, there had been some innovation in sanitary tech. sanity tech,. <laughs> and one of the men at the forefront was George E. Waring Jr. So whomst is George? George was the son of a wealthy stove manufacturer, born in Pound Ridge, New York. And when he was younger, George studied agriculture science. He was a farmer, basically. But then in 1857, he joined a very big project in New York City. He was going to help with draining the wetlands so they could construct Central Park. He was like, yes, I will be an agricultural and drainage engineer now. And also what we need to know about George is that he loved horses. And I know I was talking about all sorts of nasty things related to horses. So I thought we might have a nice tangent talking about how much this guy loved horses. And no, I don't mean he loved horses in like a brony or a furry sort of way. Nothing nasty, just a pure, tender love for a horse. Don't be nasty. He loved horses so much that in 1875, he published a book about all of his horses and the adventures that they had had together, called Whip and Spur. And it seems the horse he loved the most was his beloved mare, Vixen. Vixen came into his life when he was working on the drainage system in Central Park. He realized to do his job that he needed a saddle horse to transport him around and do his duties. He went to various auctions, tracked down leads, but couldn't find a horse. It wasn't until a stable boy was like, Hey, sir, I got a man who can get you a horse. And so George walked to the edge of town and met a dude who peddled not just clams, but also potatoes. Wow, diversified inventory. And that dude was like, Yeah, I got a horse you can have. So they went to the barn, and that's where George met Vixen. She was scrawny from all the hard labor she had done, but he knew he wanted this horse because of her, quote, "'Wonderful head.'" This was the perfection of a horse's head, small, bony, and of perfect shape with keen deer-like eyes and thin, active ears. Her royal blood shone out from her face and kept it beautiful, end quote. And George and Vixen, they had a great time together. She helped him go about his duties, and then sometimes they would have some fun while working on the drainage system. He wrote, The park afforded good leaping in those days. Some of the fences were still standing around the abandoned gardens, and new ditches and old brooks were plenty. She cleared the brook with apparent ease, and once, in a moment of excitement, she carried me over a brook with a clear leap of 26 feet. George really loved Vixen. She was a great companion, whether he was riding her or they were just walking next to each other. He said, she was as good company as a dog, better perhaps, because she seemed more really a part of one's (laughs) self. Vixen followed George into the Civil War, but unfortunately, that's when she died. In his book, he spent many pages describing how he tried to save her, how he tried to keep her alive. At one point, she had gotten a fever, and he asked the veterinarian to stay back and heal her. He said the thought of leaving her was very bitter. And with the work of the vet, she did recover and was returned to George at their camp. George said there was now hope that she would recover sufficiently to be sent to St. Louis to be nursed. But then that night, another horse broke into her enclosure and broke her leg. (laughs) George was beside himself. He said, I could not let her die now when she was just restored to me. He was basically like, I don't care if her leg is broken. He knew that she could never carry him again, but he was like, she could be my pet. And I could send her home and make her happy for many a long year yet. Meanwhile, he's literally at war. But eventually, on a lovely Sunday morning in November 1862, he saw Vixen sitting on her haunches like a dog. And she sat like that all day and refused any food. And George finally knew there was no hope. She wasn't going to get better. So one of the officers led him to his tent. And George said... I turned to look back at poor Vixen and she gave me a little neigh of farewell. (laughs) He talked with the officer about all the good days he had had with Vixen until they heard a single shot. That evening, the band played a funeral song and George said, the sun went down on one of the very sad days of my life. But anyway, enough of that horse story. After the war, George continued to work at the intersection of farming and engineering. He wrote a bunch of books about scientific agriculture, along with his stories about horses. And he got a lot of good money for this, so he went to Europe, where he wrote traveling stories, and probably learned about what European engineers were doing to help their cities not fall to trash and rot. And along the way, he developed a deep interest in public health. He wrote a bunch of stuff about sanitation. He would make the case that things need to be more sanitary because it's right for the public's health. But also, he was like, if we invest in sanitation, maybe we can find a way to make money off of our trash. Hmm, Very idealistic. Now, a lot of people think that George wasn't actually that innovative. What he was good at was taking other people's ideas and making them seem really compelling. He had a big personality and wrote with, quote, infinite gusto. People were like, wow, this guy is bold. You know, he's like in the papers writing about the privy. That's very impolite, but also very interesting. So he was becoming a bit of a celebrity and also a hotshot in the sanitary engineering world. So in 1878... George was the person that the newly established National Board of Health called on to go fix Memphis. What was happening in Memphis was they kept having these cholera and yellow fever epidemics. And a big part of the reason the diseases were so bad there was because a lot of their water wells were right next to the places where they shat and pissed. And there was other various drainage issues. So they called on George to fix it and he came up with a whole new sewer system for the city that would separate all the bad stuff from the water. And after it was put in place, there were no more epidemics. So in 1895, William Lafayette Strong became the mayor of New York City. Strong was big on reform, and he came into office looking to squash the corruption of the previous administration. One newspaper wrote that Strong's election was a revolution that closes a dark and opens a bright era in the municipal affairs of New York. And so almost immediately after he took office, on January 1st, 1895, William Strong appointed George Waring as the commissioner of street cleaning for New York City. He was like, George, help us. We're drowning in shit and trash and dead animal carcasses. Fix it. So George got to work. He wrote some memos. He said, there is much need for radical improvement. And one of the first things he did was assemble a sanitation army. He hired a bunch of civically minded dudes to become street cleaners and trash collectors. He made them dress in white suits. You know, the perfect color when you're cleaning trash shit, piss and oh, also, you know, ash was a big problem. And he did this for a variety of reasons. You know, one, the public was skeptical about street cleaners because as I said earlier, usually they were nefarious dudes who would only work if they were bribed. But George was trying to be like, no, look, these are professional men. Look at their suits. And George's approach to cleaning was very systematic. He was like, okay, go clean this part of the city from this exact block to this one at this time with this equipment and make sure it looks good before you move on. And he told his men to start cleaning in the poorer areas of the city because the rich people would already hire people to clean their streets. And initially, the people who lived in the poorer areas threw rocks at them because they saw a bunch of dudes in matching suits, and they were like, what the hell? They're trying to steal our homes. But eventually, the residents realized, oh, they're just cleaning the streets. Nice. Cool. And after two weeks, their streets looked just as clean as the rich people's. And this literal street cleaning wasn't the only thing George Waring was doing. Oh, no. He made new and improved street cleaning and garbage collecting equipment. He also came up with a system where he was making residents separate the things they were trying to throw away. He made them separate them into four categories. And in a short period of time, George had really triumphed. The New York Times reported, Clean streets at last. Marvels have been done. There was a parade for the sanitation workers who were called White Wings or White Angels. But to be clear, George is actually the one who threw the parade. But whatever. It wasn't like the people got together and were like, we're going to have a parade. He was like, I'm, I'm making a parade for myself. But unfortunately, after the next election, that corrupt government from before was voted back in, so George was out of a job. He was not invited back as commissioner of street cleaning. They didn't want someone appointed under reformist Mayor Strong. Gross. But George Waring was not done with his career. It was 1898, the year of the Spanish-American War. You know, the one with the embalmed beef scandal. George got a job to go down to Havana and make an assessment about their sanitation so that they could figure out how to stop all these yellow fever outbreaks. His results were uh, the sanitation is uh, very bad, low score. There's no sewers. Trash and feces are just thrown into the streets. The market smells very bad. And the privies are overflowing. And the street cleaners, they have no money. On his way back, he wrote the first draft of his findings, and he was like, yeah, if you give me $10 million, I can fix it. But the day he got back to New York, he started feeling a bit sick. And then four days later, he died of yellow fever. A lot of people were sad. One person wrote about his death Quote, his death at the hands of the king of dirt diseases gives a mournful but most impressive emphasis to the lesson which he taught so earnestly of the kinship of dirt and disease. George's sanitation plans were enacted in Havana, and Havana was cleaned up. People were like, damn, it looks good. But unfortunately, there's still a lot of yellow fever. And New York, well, it was cleaner than it had ever been in the 19th century. But, you know, the horseshit problem did not fully resolve. It was still around, there were still a lot of horses, it was still a little gross, just maybe less, but still kind of gross. And the new administration wasn't really giving resources to the sanitation department. And technically, the poo problem wasn't actually fixed until we started driving cars. <laughs> It took the rise of automobiles to really eliminate horse shit from the streets. Because they're like, we don't need as many horses as we used to. You know, that's how you solve your problem. Go to the source. Just get rid of the horses. And yeah, at the time, technically cars were the cleaner, greener option. And look how that's worked out (laughs) perfectly. Nothing is wrong. So thank you, Henry Ford, for everything you did. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't want to thank Henry Ford, but, you know, cars. Anyway, guys, I think every week we learn a lesson from American filth. And I think the lesson here is that uh, don't have 200,000 horses. American Filth is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me, Gabby Watts. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock. Our executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Elsie Crowley, and Brandon Barr. If you guys like this show, please leave a five-star review and a comment. And you can also follow along with the pod on Instagram, at American Pod. Okay, guys, bye. School of Humans. Whether you're a
1: savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time Two percent cash back on purchases and pay zero percent interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
0: Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment and all inclusive fares.